When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From movie set to multiplex, it's the business of film with James Cameron Wilson. Jerry, don't let us for the moon. We have the stars. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! To infinity and beyond! This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Business of Film, where I am joined by James Cameron Wilson as we have a look at what's been going on at the box office, which I, you said was pretty grim last week, James. Ah! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not looking much better. In fact, it's looking considerably worse, ah. down another 30.5%. And to put that into some kind of frame of reference that's 85 percent. that's an 85 percent drop on the second weekend of july this year with no film passing the one million pound mark for the second time mm-hmm. in the last four weeks i think when you were you and i were off for the week that was uh, the worst week but it's it's just getting worse it of course it didn't help that cinemas were closed no that shouldn't really make any effect because of course the cinemas were closed on monday Yes, for the Queen's funeral. It's not the weekend. Yeah, no, that that shouldn't affect it. Um, Apparently, my local multiplex was booked solid for the Queen's funeral, and then sixteen people turned up. So you can imagine they felt a bit annoyed. So hang it was booked solid. They were showing the funeral where they on the big. They were showing the funeral for free. Yeah, members of the public in all six weeks. And they were solidly booked out, and only 16 people turned up. Oh, that's horrible. I suppose, unfortunately, if you offer something for free, people don't necessarily treat it with the... the well, this is it. The respect yeah, it's very, it very sad. So it it's is. not looking good. There is mm-hmm. only really one success story, which we will get to. So at number one, we have... I was very glad, because when I reviewed this film very favourably last week, I hadn't actually read the reviews of See How They Run. But was thrilled to see that all the critics loved it as well. And this is a sort of take on this is a whodunit period yes. take on the mousetrap with Sam Rockwell and Saoirse Ronan. And I just chuckled throughout. I thought it was a delight. It's mm. only down 15%. Oh, well, that's least, good. No, it wasn't something. a massive opening, was it? Well, no, but it was the only film that made over a million. Mm. Uh, it's now got a total of £2.9 million. At number two, strangely, we have Bullet Train, which is shot, no pun intended, back up the charts from number eight last weekend to number two. Um, so everything point. else going more slowly, presumably, uh, so it's well, just uh, gone yeah, past, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it's only down 6% with a total of 10.4 million. I mean, we should say, I did enjoy it more than you. Uh, well, you loathed it. Uh, I didn't loathe it. I just thought it was mediocre. Mm. Yeah. I, I did loathe Minions, The Rise of Gru at number three, which <laughs> yes. was at number yes. five, down 16% for a total 
painful grimace here, £45.1 million. Now, to the success story, number four, this film actually went up 3% in its 17th week. We are, of course, talking about Top Gun Maverick, with a total now of £82.8 million sterling, making it the eighth highest grossing film in UK history, having overtaken, as I predicted last weekend, Star Wars The Last Jedi. That is amazing. And it's still going up. I'm still talking to people who are seeing it because it's a big screen movie. If you're going to see Top Gun, you need to see it on as big a screen as possible to accommodate Tom Cruise's naked chest. (laughs) At number five. That's not one of the things I noticed in the film, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. He takes his shirt off a lot, Simon. Oh, he's turning into the new Clint Eastwood. Remember uh, how we, we got to the stage where we were praying Clint Eastwood wouldn't take his shirt off? Yeah, and well, I think Tom Cruise is probably in better shape than Clint Eastwood ever was, yeah, even at the age of 60 true. now. Yeah, Although, true. to be fair, he was 59 when he took his shot, shirt off when he shot Top Gun Maverick. At number five, we've got DC League of Super Pets, which has gone up. It was at six, but it is down 16% in currency with a total of 14.9 million. At number six... Down quite considerably, we have Tad, The Lost Explorer, and The Curse of the Mummy, which, as you know, is a follow-up to Tad, The Lost Explorer, and Tad, The Lost Explorer, and The Secret of King Midas. I will happily allow you to call it Tad 3 in future, if that would help, James. Oh, oh, let's. Oh, let's. (laughs) You've made my day. Tad 3. Okay. 7, Elvis 1, down 5%, with a total of 27, 4-point million quid, Uh, which... um, that's quite a nice sum of money looking at today's chart. So it's at least it's a good week for the box office Toms, Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks. Okay. At eight, we've got a Brahmastra part one Shiva down 61%, presumably the audience for this Bollywood film, which is a very long action adventure fantasy from India. They probably saw it all in the first week which is why it's dropped so fantastically. At number eight, nine, we've got Bodies, 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 which is a black comedy stroke horror film starring Amandla Stenberg and Maria Bakalova, who you will remember from the Borat sequel. She was even nominated for an Oscar for it. That's down 44% for a total of 733 grand. We have a new film at number 10, Moon Age Daydream, which is a documentary about David Bowie. Now, there have been many films about David Bowie, but this is the first to have permission from his estate and uses previously unreleased footage from his personal archives. And I think because it was showing up IMAX, it did pretty well and got a very strong screen average of £3,629. So at least that's one success story. I wish I could say the same for the film I am about to review, which was at number 48, called Both Sides of the Blade. Uh, Showing in 21 screens. Gosh, including your local. No, no, no. Oh, I had to, no, no. I had to go oh, right. far and wide for this. <laughs> oh, why I, do I get the impression you're regretting that you did that? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> um, 
I will explain why, uh, why I went far and wide to see this. There seems to be two kinds of film director. Those that like to experiment with the medium within which they're working, like Van Gogh plying on his impasto paint with a palette knife, mm. and those that feel it is the job of the director to best serve his actors and the story they are telling. I think there's room for both in the cinema, and the two styles can cross over, as is the case with Claire Denis and her new film, Both Sides of the Blade, based on the novel A Tourna de la Vie by Christine Angeau. Denis, who is now 76 and has such films as Beau Travet, Bastards, and Let the Sunshine In to her credit, is as busy as ever. And this year alone, she won the Grand Prix at Cannes for her new thriller, Stars at Noon, while mm. snaring the Best Director Award at Berlin for both sides of the blade back in February. She is perhaps something of an acquired taste, but if you allow her long establishing shots to build the atmosphere that she desires, the film does gradually assert its power. This is really a slow burner. Starting out on the Mediterranean, we see a middle-aged couple swimming and kissing and just overflowing with affection for one another, which I thought, A, was a bit much, and B, boded ill in the film's <laughs> yeah. later passages. Yes. We learn little about this couple, played by Juliette Benoche and Vincent Ledon, but this is part of what keeps us initially glued. It turns out he has a police record, she has her own radio show, and they share an apartment in a fashionable part of Paris. And their lovemaking leaves little to the imagination during one of the few occasions when the characters are not wearing their protective face masks, which is becoming more and more of a common thing in films. Mm. Then, as is usually the case with romantic mysteries, an unexpected event occurs which upsets the status quo. Sarah, played by Juliette Binoche, spots an old boyfriend in the street, Francois, who subsequently asks Jean, Vincent Ledon, to work for him. There is a subplot in which we discover that Jean's 15-year-old son, Marcus, is of mixed heritage, is having problems at school. And so a theme of race, which is both perceptive and provocative, is threaded through the drama. For the first half, I was too aware that Claire Denis was behind the camera. But then I was drawn into the drama and found myself hanging on to the next facial reaction. With much of the action predicated on what a character doesn't say as much as by what he or she does. What the film does show is how much the emotional status quo can hang on so little so delicate a thing that a split-second misperception can erode the foundations of trust, as it should be, because we have become invested in these characters. The later stages make for uncomfortable viewing, perhaps holding up a mirror to our own lives and our own experiences. I certainly, certainly felt the case with me uh, when we feel that our whole lives can collapse due to an innocent misunderstanding. Hmm. So how solid are the foundations of our domestic castles in the air? Like all good dramas, both sides of the blade does draw one in. It's wealth of nuance proving both credible 
and thought-provoking. By the end, I felt I really knew this couple and suffered along with them. But then we are talking of actors, of course, of the calibre of Juliette Binoche and Vincent Lenon, the latter who has consistently provided well-anchored performances in such films as the brilliant Anything for Her, Welcome, and The Measure of a Man, the last for which he won both the César and the Best Best Actor Award at Cannes. Do you know Vincent Ledon? No, I don't think I do. He's quite a hunk. He's a very good actor. He does a lot of... Um, I mean, he does action films, but he also does... I'd probably, need to, I'd probably need to see his face to know if I... You'd probably recognise. Okay. But I have one complaint. No woman at the age of 58 can look as beautiful as Juliette Binoche. Be that as it may, may, both sides of the blade is available at selected cinemas and it's also on the Curzon Home Cinema website if you want to stream it. Okay. It just as you were talking about that, I'm trying to think, when was the last foreign language film that really took in the cinema? I mean, I wonder if because it's so easy now to see foreign language films online through streaming or, I guess, DVDs as, as well, in a way that it wasn't when we were much younger, where you had to go out to, you know, those art house cinemas that barely exist anymore. Um I mean, maybe I'm just not thinking. Maybe there have been some in the last sort of few years that I've, I've forgotten. But, you know, those days of going to see Babette's Feast or Jean de Florette, Manon de Source, and, I mean, so many others. You know, when... Well, it's, it's all right, James. You don't have to answer now, but it certainly well, seems to be I know less that common than Tiger, it used to be. Cry, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was the first subtitle film to make over 100 million. Mm. And I think people going are more... Going back quite a long time, I, isn't it? I, I know, but I think that's opened the floodgates and mm. i think with scandy now noir now being such a thing on television people are far more cine literate mm. and you see a lot of main mainstream hollywood films now with subtitles not just Klingon. <laughs> yes that's probably true james this is probably a good moment for us to say goodbye unless you've seen anything further down the charts than than 48 no, 48 48 <laughs> is as far as i go <laughs> okay weekend. then let's take a brief pause sharing ideas about money this is share radio this is simon rose i'm talking business of film with james cameron wilson uh, who has been telling us just how lamentable the state of the UK box office is at the moment. Uh, but, James, there's still plenty of product coming out. And, of course, as we've spoken of in previous weeks, one of the problems this cinema has is there are not that many big movies in the pipeline. But the streamers are still producing them, aren't they? They are indeed. And I'm just going to talk about a Blu-ray, um, which is a very different tone to the film I just reviewed. But it's another European romantic mystery this time, Identification of a Woman, directed by Michelangelo Antonioni. Antonioni's wife, Enrica, in an interview on the 2K Blu-ray restoration of Antonioni's final full-length film, reveals that her late husband wrote to the abstract painter Mark Rothko and stated that, you and I have the same job. You paint and I film nothingness. Antonioni searched for nothingness because he found it so aesthetically appealing. To chance upon his last film now might prove to be something of a challenge without a foreknowledge of the director's work. 
He was the great Italian master of the 1960s, whose quartet of modern classics, La Ventura, La Nota, La Clisse and Red Desert, have been described as a study of the alienation of the bourgeoisie. He then, of course, went on to make his name on the international stage with the English-speaking blow-up mm. Zabriskie Point and The Passenger, before returning to his native Rome to direct his most personal film of all, Identification of a Woman. As with his earlier works, it is an enigmatic, psychologically dense and leisurely romantic mystery in which a middle-aged film director who happens to live in Rome is looking for inspiration to make his next film. Thomas Millian plays Niccolo with more than a passing resemblance to a young Terry Wogan who returns <laughs> to his city apartment only to be given a warning by a complete stranger to abandon his relationship with a much younger woman. As with all of Antonioni's films, the dialogue can feel a little artificial. The director co-wrote the screenplay with Gerard Brack and Tonino Guerra. Well, the lighting of his scenes and the attendant camera moves are everything. He always used at least two cameras, one to capture the moral centre of the scene from the emotional viewpoint of the protagonist and the other to serve as the objective eye of the witness, the onlooker. As the late Goddard, once said, the placement of the camera is a moral issue. The scene here is 1982. There is a lot of smoking and quite a bit of nudity as Niccolo drifts around Rome and the Italian countryside looking for the perfect face to kickstart his imagination. The much younger woman in his life are enigmatic figures who say things like, a little hypocrisy helps now and then and I like being cold. Niccolo and Marvi seem ill-suited for one another, who he met. She's a young aristocrat he meets as a patient of his sister's, a gynecologist. Um, yet besides the, well, the fact that she's so much younger than he, he is, uh, they obviously get on very well in the bedroom. And after the film's most famous scene in which they get lost in a thick fog on the way to the countryside, she disappears. And while he's looking for her back in Rome, he picks up another young, very beautiful woman, Ida, who is the social opposite of Marvi. Mm. Needless to say, the restoration of the film is ace, and it's fascinating to eavesdrop on this deeply private milieu of another world in another time. This is art house Italian cinema at its most inscrutable and provocative. Then, 13 years later, Antonioni collaborated with Wim Wenders on an anthology of four stories in a film called Beyond the Clouds, by which time the director was 83. Again, it was praised for its visual power, Antonioni's stock in trade. He's certainly not a director for everyone, but he does have an enormous following. For me, though, I think Blow Up remains his most mesmerising work. But you can get identification of a woman on Blu-ray. And, and this is restored been, as well, yes? Yeah. Oh, God, it looks amazing. Yeah, it's just been restored and it is out now. Okay, James. Okay. So um, what else have you got for us? Well, I haven't actually touched on Netflix for a while, so I'd have a look. Um, the wonderful thing about 
the job of a film critic is coming across the unexpected treat. Um, mm. As you know, I am evangelical about knowing nothing about a film before seeing it, besides the certificate, the running time, and the location. Well, I came by as a 15. It's 109 minutes long, and it's set in London. I also knew that it starred George Mackay, that versatile actor mm. from 1917, and Munich, The Edge of War, and Hugh Bonneville, the TV actor. But I had no idea of the story, and we will keep it that way, other than to say that this is a dystopian view of Britain today and is directed by the Iranian-born filmmaker Babak Anvari, whose psychological horror film, Under the Shadow, received critical acclaim. George Mackay has top billing, and he plays Toby, a 23-year-old who still lives at home with his mum, Kelly MacDonald, and has failed at art, music, and uni, and styles himself as a rebel who breaks into the homes of the rich and spray-paints his signature message, I came by, across a pristine wall. And you know how the affluent have a lot of pristine white walls. Hmm. The first thing you hear on the soundtrack is the ominous rattle of a spray can, something that unnerved me from the start. Toby and his best friend Jay Purcell Ascot have broken into a penthouse apartment with fabulous views of the city and are systematically defacing a wall before scaling down the outside of the building. Not, I should state, before turning the Wi-Fi back on before their escape. Of course, so many properties today have their alarm systems linked with the internet. So all an intruder needs is the password to your router or hub. So in one scene, we see Jay, who is working in the garden of an eminent retired judge, walk into the latter's mansion looking for the bathroom. That's his word. Uh, but not before taking a photograph with his mobile of the back of the man's router. Simple. Sorted. I came by, title referring to the calling card of Toby, written in huge colourful letters, knows its technology. So when Toby does break into the mansion of the judge, the latter, Hugh Bonneville, knows that his alarm has been compromised while still playing squash at his club. But when he returns home, he dismisses the setback as technology being too clever by half, while Toby sleep, slips out into the night, but not before making a discovery which I shan't reveal here. Above his bed, in the same garish letters, Toby has sprayed the legend, nothing is true, everything is permissible. In fact, besides scaring the waste matter out, out of the wealthy, violating their safe space and defacing their property, Toby proves most destructive towards his mother, a widowed single parent. She is a psychiatrist who preaches the rule, rewards of parenthood. The payoff is seeing your child happy. Um, while Toby turns her kitchen into a war zone and secretly steals her TV remotes before smashing them against a wall, we really feel her pain. But to Toby, she is an embodiment of the bourgeoisie who likes nothing more than to cosy up to the Great British Bake Off with a large glass of red wine while Toby goes out and gets wasted. To push home this dystopian view of modern Britain, the opening shot of the film's title is set to Henry Purcell's funeral music 
the same piece of music that Kubrick used in A Clockwork Orange, thus drawing an apt illusion. Um, I mean, I think the only thing that really annoyed me was the title. It's got a bit of a pat conclusion. But I was very unsettled by this, and I think George Mackay and Hugh Bonneville are both cast beautifully against type. And where do we see this one? On Netflix. On Netflix. Okay. I was surprised how gripped I was and how intelligent it was from this marvellous Iranian director who now, I believe, lives in London. James, thank you very much indeed. That's it for this edition of The Business of Film. James Cameron Wilson will be back, though, with more at the same time next week. I want to be alone. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs>